Hi, everyone. Welcome to Name Drop San Diego, a podcast from the San Diego Union Tribune that's all about the fascinating people in, around, and from San Diego. I'm your host, Christy Totten, and my guest today is Brian Hu. Brian is an associate professor of film at San Diego State University, and he's also the artistic director at the San Diego Asian Film Festival, which basically means he gets to watch movies for a living. Brian and I talked about predicting movie endings, what he's cooking, what he's cooked during the pandemic, and of course, what the film festival has on deck for this year. Here's our interview. Uh, Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to learning more about you. Um, I was wondering if you could give me your brief bio. So I know that you're the artistic director at the San Diego Asian Film Festival. You have a PhD in cinema from UCLA, and you are, of course, a professor at SDSU. But like when you tell the story of your life, what are the, the notes to hit? Um, I mean, you've pretty much summed it up. And I, I guess like in some ways, all three of the, all of these identities, right, as a scholar, as a professor, as a film festival curator, it all stems from me just wanting to share movies that I love with the world. Um, I think about growing up reading people like Roger Ebert, and then going to um, places where they show just obscure movies like the Pacific Film Archive in the Bay Area or the um, LA County Museum of Art in Los Angeles and just thinking like wow like these people's jobs are so interesting they they watch movies all day they look they watch old movies new movies and um, and they put it in a context to make them more meaningful to audiences who are hungry for something other than Hollywood movies and I thought like that that's what I want to do and I realized that in order to make that happen you kind of have to cobble together a lot of different tracks so um, for me that was teaching and doing research and then putting putting together my own film festival yeah you have such an incredible job it definitely seems like a life hack you know like oh I get paid to watch movies more or less and paid to show movies to other people I mean like what does your day-to-day life look like Oh, I mean, there's the, the romantic notion is, I mean, sometimes I joke like, oh, I have to watch four movies today, <laughs> uh, which first of all is very taxing and it becomes all a, uh, so it becomes a jumble in my head. And sometimes I become very jaded <laughs> because uh, they're not always good. In fact, they're rarely good. Um, <laughs> but in reality though, um, the day-to-day of say film festival programming involves a lot of research. Um, figuring out like, are there films coming down the pipeline that are have not played other festivals yet? So I need, we need to track them, especially if we're trying to get new films. Um, these could be independent films, they could be mainstream movies, they could be like the ones that are somewhere in between trying to figure out their own path. And then for me, then it becomes also kind of negotiation, like trying to help these filmmakers decide if they think that the San Diego Asian Film Festival is a good platform for them. And I, I of course, try to make the case that it is because we find audiences for them. Um, we give them visibility. Um, so, so really a lot of it is making the case for our, um, our platform. Um, so that eats into my eating four movies a day. <laughs> um, yeah, that, at least on the festival side, that's what my day-to-day is like. Well, you mentioned it's sometimes sort of feeling like a chore to like, oh man, you have to watch four movies today. I mean, like, do you become disillusioned, you know, turning a passion into a profession? This is always something I've wondered about as a person who loves books, like loves books. I'm like, oh, maybe it'd be cool to be a librarian or work at a bookstore, but I'm like, maybe it would, you know, take away some of the joy. Is that your experience? 
It's a great question because I have students ask me this all the time. In fact, I asked this question of myself when I was an undergraduate. Like I was, I, I, of course, I you know, grew up loving movies. And then suddenly you take these classes where they're breaking the movies down. And you're sort of like looking at movies for reasons that you didn't used to watch movies. And, um, and yeah, and I think for a lot of students, this is, it's sort of like when you see how the sausage is made, it destroys the meal. Whereas I think for me, it's always enhanced it. Like for me to realize that, maybe on the level of craft like so so all that goes into the making of it which is its own kind of heroic feat um especially with like films being such expensive media and especially if you're talking about like asian american filmmakers or asian filmmakers who are really up against a, a behemoth of a system and yet they still get it made um and and so yeah when i'm watching this film sometimes it hurts me because the films aren't very good but <laughs> but I, I still find a lot of value in seeing like in trying to understand like what did it take for them to pull this off and and in the back of my mind and this is maybe the like the researcher in me like even a so-called bad movie is still a movie that tells you something about the world and and the kinds of stories people want to tell and so Maybe that side of me, the side that's like not so much about should people like recommending movies to people, but the side that's more about trying to understand the field. It's still all of that continues to still energize my, my like getting up in the morning and, and like looking at my list of movies to watch. Well, that sounds very optimistic. Um, well, are you one of those people that are really good at knowing what's going to happen at the end of the movie? Like you're good at predicting it, you know the format. Well, I'm not that person, but I know people that are like that. It always is kind of surprising to me, or maybe it's not. Yeah, it's I, I, I think maybe I went through a phase where I thought I wanted to be smarter than the movie, right? Like mm -hmm. I wanted to outsmart movies. So like I know, oh, I know what you're about to do. Um, and then I would take a certain joy of finding out that I was right. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. But I think I've completely abandoned that. Like I'm, when I'm watching movies now, I so rarely think about how I think this is going to end and think way more about how are we going to get there. Um, and so that makes every movie kind of a surprise still. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, yeah, just because I don't care so much about how movies end. And, and often like I'm the most unreliable person. If someone asks me like, how, how did that movie end? Even a movie I'm showing at my own festival, I, I don't think I remember. But I could tell you exactly how I felt while getting there, and like the emotions I felt, like Im like images that are seared in my head. Um, so so maybe like it just it, a change in the way I watched movies have made me sort of abandon that. Like what's going to happen? Can we talk about your book? So I know that you were a Fulbright scholar, is that right? You spent time in Hong Kong, and you have a book that actually relates a little bit to you know Hong Kong. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so I'm, uh, the book comes out of my PhD dissertation when I was at UCLA, and um, at that time I was really interested in. So I'm I'm a I was born in the United States. My parents are immigrants from Taiwan, um, and I grew up watching mostly Hollywood movies. And when I was in college, I started getting into movies from Taiwan, and by extension, films from Hong Kong, because those are they kind of go hand in hand, especially for the generation like my parents. And I was really curious, like. What, what, what movies were my parents watching when they were growing up or when they were in their teens and 20s that would make them want to move to the United States? Mm -hmm. um, like, what did they say? What, do, what did films say about being an overseas person from Taiwan or overseas person in Hong Kong, like hanging out in San Francisco or Los Angeles? Um, and so I was curious, like, are these, are these movies turning these characters into heroes? Um, are they problems for like families and relationships when you move across the world? Um, and so that got me like thinking about how places like Hong Kong and Taiwan have imagined this idea of an overseas figure. 
And so that's what my book is about. So I look at things like um, the 1950s and 60s, all these musicals in Hong Kong about <laughs> people who could like dance the dances of the world. And they would stage just like fantasies of like doing the cha-cha and stuff like in Hong Kong. And for me, like that was like planting the seed of what does it mean to be like, it's also the emergence from quote unquote, like a third world place to being a global place. And I feel like culture is such a big part of making, convincing people that this is possible. Um, and, and so yeah, that, that's what the book is about. So partly it's like a little bit about my family wanting to understand my family and their generation and then connect it with my own generation, which is when I go back to Taiwan and Hong Kong, they don't see me as a local person. Mm -hmm. um, and then what do I therefore mean to somebody in Hong Kong and Taiwan? I feel like that's all connected, right? Like the earlier generation wanting or not wanting to go abroad. And then my generation coming back and like, am I just some kind of weird alien to them? Um, and weirdly enough, a lot of these movies are about overseas figures who are actually like monsters and aliens. Interesting. Yeah, that is such a fascinating uh, topic. Just I, I think about this sometimes, you know, we learn so much about the world through movie representations, you know, and it's like, do I really know about this? Like, do I do I really know what it's like to be a doctor? Or did I just watch Grey's Anatomy? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like everything I know about space, right? I mean, is, is mostly from uh, depictions of it in in cinema. I mean, have you thought about that? Or have you, ex you know, um, experienced that? I mean, all the time, right? I mean, this, this is also the big question of representation, um, that, that when you see something represented, you know that it is now possible. And we often talk about this in terms of like um, racial representation or gender representation, right? Like to see a Asian person as a superhero, like suddenly unlocks that as a possibility in, in your head. Um, and then also sort of like, what are the emotions that we, some, that we now associate with these kinds of images, right? Is this a negative association? Is it a positive association? Is it a heroic one? Um, and because this does impact us, uh, I'm not going to say it, like it changes the world necessarily, but like it on subconsciously, it impacts, um, for instance, one's own sense of pride or, or a possibility of like what I can be when I grow up. Um, uh, and like, like relationships between us and our, and our loved ones. Um, I, 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 so I think that's definitely significant. Yeah, it is on my mind. Um, what, ha, what do you think about Asian representation in film and how it's been changing? You know, it's been in the news so much in the past few years, and we've gotten these big sort of blockbuster movies with nearly, you know, all Asian casts. But are, are you happy with what you're seeing or, or what strides still need to be made? Well, I guess I'm, this is also the jaded part where it's like, uh, I, I never really trust Hollywood. Like they, <laughs> they will do what they, what their financial calculations tell them they should do. And right now it seems like taking a risk on movies with Asian main characters is viable. And, and so I, I see it less charitably than mm -hmm. I think a lot of people do. Um, and that's why I like just hanging out in the realm of independent cinema, right? Like these are filmmakers who, like Asian American filmmakers, who like they do this because this is their calling, right? Like mm -hmm. they, they make these movies because if they didn't, they they would, there's something that, 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 that their, their souls are incomplete. <laughs> like, and, and to me, um, there's something just more, I don't know if authentic is the right word, but like it's, it's meaningful and I'm driven to it. So like Hollywood becoming more and more like open to Asian stories. Obviously I have to like, I, I like that, right? Um, uh, it's far from sufficient to me. And I'm also skeptical um, <laughs> because I've all seen to the extent to which like it happens. And then a few years later, it's the, the fad has ended and they've moved on to something else. Um, and so that's why I, for me, it's always, we must continue to give independent 
filmmakers a platform and remind our audiences that none of this that we're seeing right now with Crazy Rich Asians or Shang-Chi, none of this is new. Um, that It's been going along for a long time. You just have to look in maybe places that you didn't know to look. And so what do you look for in films that you want to feature at the Asian Film Festival? Um, I mean, part of it is just so subjective. Um, like, did it, did it move me? Um, did it make me laugh? Uh, but, but like specifically I'm looking for, is it, does this show me something that I've never seen before? Um, and with a lot of Asian representation, it's easy because it's just, a lot of this doesn't exist. Like I've never seen a, um, Asian American documentary about a filmmaker trying to make a movie about an artist, right? Like, it's just like such a unique path. Um, and therefore it, a lot of it just works. Um, it, I, it, I'm always surprised. Um, and also like, I'm, I'm interested in the conversations that can emerge out of each of these movies, like showing at our film festival. I, I do see our festival as this is like precious real estate. And we're at a point now where there's so many Asian American filmmakers and that's a great thing. And one of the, the really hard parts of the job is rejecting any filmmaker because we know that they're that this is uphill battle and we just have finite space. Um, and so in trying to think about like what's important to us, it's what kind of conversations will this film spark about Asian American communities, but also just about like how we can play with form um, and what does it mean to be an Asian American artist? Um, and some films are just, you just want to talk about them afterwards. They're not always the best films either, but they're the ones that like um, fulfill our mission, which is to, to elevate discourse around Asian American communities. What is something you've seen lately um, that has really moved you or just that you're excited about? Um, well, one is like, was a total surprise. And it's actually the opening night film of this year's San Diego Asian Film Festival. Uh, it's called Seven Days. And on paper, it's just, a regular rom-com. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way, I love rom-coms, but like this is a film that was completely shot during the pandemic. And so first of all, I'm thinking about like, uh, I remember what it was like in around summertime, fall of 2020, and when everyone's asking the question, are we allowed to make movies again? <laughs> like, can mm -hmm. we get on a set together? Um, and just so the ingenuity of these filmmakers to say like, with as small of a cast and crew as possible, we're gonna pull this off. Um, so it's basically a cast of two people. Um, it's a rom-com about, um, it's like they're South Asian Americans. Their parents are trying to set them up through all of these like Indian dating services. Um, and then one of them, like the guy, he's not very good at dating. Um, and the girl <laughs> is, she's just like, you know, I'm doing this for my mom, whatever, this will pass. Um, and in the middle of their date, the shutdown happens. Like oh, they're wow. looking at their phones and it's like, go home now and don't leave your home. And they're basically stuck at home for a very long time. And so it's like, it's a usual kind of like opposites attract. Like you, you, mm -hmm. you kind of, like you said earlier, like you kind of know how this is going to end. But then I'm also thinking, I don't know how this is going to end because I don't know how the pandemic ends. Oh my gosh, um, yes. And so like, how, do, how does this get resolved? And so like something as like this, this conundrum to me was so fascinating and actually moving, moving in the sense of I'm moved by these filmmakers who have, who like, against all odds, decided to, to pursue this. They could have just said, let's just call 2020 a wash and wait till 2021 to make another movie. But they decided to do it anyways. And they took all these um, considerations and protocols. And then also I was moved by these characters who are also trying to figure out something that to some is like allegorical for what we've all been trying to figure out. Like how do we interact with strangers and how do we uh, open ourselves up to the possibilities of friendship and love? 
um, at this kind of precarious time. So yeah, that was that was moving to me, and it was something I'd never seen before. Mm. Well, I'm sold. I'm going to be there. But while we're on the topic, can you tell me more about the film festival this year and what some of the highlights are? Yeah, um, I mean, this is the 22nd annual festival, and and we say annual very proudly because we didn't skip last year. We made it happen last year. It's yes. an online festival. Um, and so this year, I mean, I think a lot of people are cautiously trying to decide whether they want to come out to our film festival. So I think a big part of our, um, our, our hope is let's make it as familiar as possible. Let's have our usual opening night, centerpiece, closing films, um, be at our usual haunts, um, just to make it feel like it's, it's like a family reunion. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, so yeah, so a lot of the things we usually do, so including films by Asian American filmmakers, um, we proudly also show films that are blockbusters in Asia. Like a lot of film festivals choose only to do independent films, but to us, like a, a blockbuster from Asia, like say from Japan or Korea, is still sort of not mainstream in the US. Mm -hmm. So it's still worth um, looking at. But we also have films by the biggest like auteurs of the world, like Hong Sang Soo and Apicha Pang, we're set the goal. Uh, we have short films. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that we play classic movies that have been uh, restored recently. Um, so we have like re new restorations from, um, from India, from Taiwan. We've got a film called Dim Sum, Little Bit of, uh, uh, Dim Sum, uh, A Little Bit of Heart, which is the film that Wayne Wang made just before Joy Luck Club. And you could tell like, this is his trial run for Joy oh, Luck Club. Wow. And I actually think it's way better. Um, and that's yeah, hard. so that's hard to beat. <laughs> I, hey, I'm putting it out there. If anyone wants to challenge me, come see the film. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it looks amazing now um, in this new restoration. And just sort of stuff like that that makes us like, let's rewrite our histories. And um, for me, like people often ask me, like, what's the theme of this year's festival? And to me, it's like the theme of the year in general, which is when, if we're going to reemerge into the world, what is the world that we want to picture for ourselves? Like if we have this chance to, in almost like a post-apocalyptic sense, like, Let's, let's just change the way that we interact with each other. Let's change the way we, we, we interact with media. Um, what's it going to look like? What's the world that we want to recreate? So to, to me, like this festival is the world that I want to live in. Uh, I love it. After the quote unquote post pandemic. Um, were there, you know, did you learn any lessons during the pandemic? Were there any things that were actually just positive in your mind? Uh, I mean, like positive in the sense that you, you learn that, Filmmakers will do anything to make a movie <laughs> because like that's that's what drives them, and so it's more like reconfirming things that I maybe I took took for granted. Mm -hmm. um, the other big thing is taking for granted the the joy of being in a movie theater. Um, yes, I feel right? like, that. Yeah, it's so like it, I remember the first time going back into movie theater for me it was in the Heights, um, nice. and just. I love how loud movies are. <laughs> I love how <laughs> bright the screen is, how giant it is. Um, and it reminds you that this is a spectacle mm -hmm. and and also that you can't you have to like succumb to the movie like at home and i'm guilty of this i've i would i all the time like, like my looking phone, at your phone looking I know. at my phone right I know. or like i the worst is when i'm watching a film on my computer and have other tabs they're just so tempting mm -hmm. to, to click on I get uh, it. especially when the movie is you know you're like ah, i'm not gonna play this right right um but in a movie theater you just have to you're in the hands of an artist. Yes, like you truly are, and um, and that there's a certain satisfaction from that too, and um, I, I I I can't wait to have more experiences like that.
I totally agree. You know, honestly, I wasn't much of a theater movie goer before the pandemic, but I went recently and I, I realized like, wow, I missed it. And also what a magical experience. You know, I think I just taken it for granted. You go to a movie, you see a movie, you do something else, but it's like, you know, you're in the theater hearing strangers reactions. I didn't realize that mattered to me at all before, but it was really cool, you know? And then the same, just being a, a true captive audience and not being distracted by anything. Cause I'm definitely guilty of always trying to multitask. And the truth is, I feel like you can't experience the movie that way, you know, not fully. So I, I love that how, I don't know if this is by this intentional or not, but our movie theater, the ultra star mission Valley, our phones don't work in there. Like, oh, I don't know good. if maybe yeah. they just shut it down <laughs> somehow, like all signals. There's a metal in the walls. That's smart. I mean, yeah. And we're, we're captive. Yeah. Um, I like that. Yeah. And, and also, yeah, like you said, like hearing other people, um, yeah. it's kind of weird now, I guess, because we've all just been in our own worlds and, totally. um, but it's a reminder that we're not alone that mm -hmm. our, and that our own responses, our laughter is legitimate because somebody else laughed. And in the case, especially of like Asian American films, films from a different culture, from, from your own culture, sometimes you feel alone in your own culture too. Mm -hmm. And to feel like, oh, somebody else understands what, what mm -hmm. I'm, what I'm laughing at. For sure. Okay, well, I have a lightning round for you, just some random questions to get to know you better. And the first one is, um, what is what is the first movie you watched as a kid that you remember being moved by? Oh, wow. Um, you can take a minute. That's a really good question. <laughs> I mean, there's, I guess, in some ways there's a bunch. Um, maybe the one that you rewatched a lot, because, you know, I know that I rewatched a lot of movies as a kid. So what comes to mind? Uh, well, I mean, it's all the Disney classics. Uh, I remember like that part of the first movie I saw in the movie theater was Oliver and Company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I remember like going home and just, it was, I was on a high, like I, like, like all the drawings I made were out of that movie <laughs> and just like, ex like wanting to extend the life of that movie through everything that I do. Um, in terms of like movie I've seen, I saw over and over again, it's not really the movie, it's the, it's the technology. So for instance, we had a videotape of the Disney film, Sword of the Store, Sword in the Stone. Oh yeah. Um, and it's like that, yeah, not usually talked about as a classic, but because we had the videotape, which I'm pretty sure we just, I don't know how we got this tape and probably was, we definitely did not buy it. Um, <laughs> and I just watched it over and over and over again. And I think it was also just like, we, there was a scarcity um, like back in my day. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, like you just watched what you had. Yes. Um, and I don't know if that happens now. I'm, I'm sure it still no. happens. I'm sure kids still rewatch things, so but. I yeah. used to think this too, because I grew up having like, I don't know, five tapes and I would watch two of them over and over again. And I thought that it was because we didn't have many other options, but now my niece, you know, there's Netflix, there's whatever, she can choose whatever she wants. She still wants to rewatch the same thing. So I was like, oh, this actually wasn't because we were poor. It was because <laughs> kids just like to be repetitive for some reason. Or maybe like they know better than us what it means to be like obsessed with the movie, right? Yeah. Like I, I, I think I would like to think that I'm, I, I'm like movie. I'm a huge movie lover, but kids like yeah, this is just on, super fan. Yeah, got to get the sheets. You got to get the t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> the t-shirt. Yeah. The, yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. What is a what is a book that has um you know what's one of your favorite books? Um. I mean, I, I like this. Just goes to show like my own background, but. Like when, I, when I hear the word book, I immediately think of like film studies books. <laughs> That's just like, so I'm, I'm going to spare the listeners any of that, but like, there, I, I have like favorite film studies books too. That's amazing. Um, but um, I mean, there's a lot of books that I remember like reading and it, for me, it, it told me a lot about how books work. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just like, oh, wow. Like when I read like Henry James for the first time, thinking like, oh, wow, you can describe a scene this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like Portrait of a Lady. And yeah. Um, and, and so, so maybe that was more about like a coming of age into the possibilities of literature, but those aren't necessarily the books I turn to when I'm like, like this is this is my love. Um, so the uh, so so there's a book that I read last year. This is uh, it was a pandemic book for me. Um, it's called The Book of Kane and Margaret, and it's actually written by a friend of mine named Kiko Araki Kawaguchi, and um, it's it's sort of autobiographical or, or autobiographical is really the wrong word. I mean, it's inspired by his grandparents and their experience in the Japanese internment camps, which on paper honestly sounds really boring to me <laughs> because I've just like as somebody who's in the Asian American like storytelling world is such a cliche but this movie has like talking animals and ghosts and like weird sex fantasies and just (laughs) things that like can quote unquote are unrealistic Uh and somehow like it this like weird menagerie of possibility that makes you rethink history and and so playful and experimental um every chapter also can be read in five minutes I, I think that He's yeah. writing this. He's re- writing this for people who are like waiting for the bus, mm-hmm. um, and I, I just so appreciate that these days. Um, and but like every time you tune to it, it's almost like a little like web episode of mm. like these image, these images, and like an alternate story to the main story. Like characters with the same names pop up over and over again, and yet they're completely different people or species or, or ages. Um, and just thinking about the camps as not just a prison, which of course it is, but of imagination and, and weirdness and lasciviousness and, mm. and um, yeah. And, and also like the kind of creativity that might spark a book like this. So I, that, that's one that like for this last year, I've um, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly telling people about. That sounds so cool and inventive. What comes to mind for me is uh, Mouse, you know, the graphic novel that's told with cat and mice about the Holocaust. And you think, is that going to be a good way to tell the story? It sounds like maybe not, but it, in fact, it is. It's a very moving book. Um, okay. Do you have a phobia? Um, <laughs> so I don't know if this is rational. I feel like this is totally rational. Like, I don't understand why sinkholes are a thing. <laughs> <laughs> sinkholes are very scary. Yes. Yeah, I mean, like the other things we can attribute to things like climate change mm-hmm. or like just ecological disasters. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe just some engineer needs to explain this to me. Like, why do we live in a world where the ground below us can suddenly disappear? Um, and often in these perfect circles that yes. seem like crop circles. It's and- horrifying. There's a movie here. There needs to be like a sinkhole horror movie, right? <laughs> oh, okay. so so partly this is on my mind because we're showing a Korean movie called Sinkhole, <laughs> and uh, oh, there which is, is one. Okay, it's, so there is. I mean, it's it. Um, it's a comedy. It's like a it's like a disaster comedy. So it didn't really like terrify me the way that like Science of the Lambs did when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> but um, it, I'm still I'm still like flabbergasted that we live in such a world and yeah. we're, and we're not doing more to stop sinkholes from happening. I agree that it's very frightening and problematic. <laughs> okay, what is something you're into right now that has nothing to do with film? Um, I mean, yeah, there's several things. Um, one of the, well, the one I'll talk about, I mean, um, it's kind of related to each other, but like this pandemic has gotten me interested in cooking more. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not a cook at all. I'm still not a cook. <laughs> but like what really helped it all along was the discovery of CSA boxes. Yeah. And we've got a like a very well-priced one here in San Diego that I know about and that like delivers 
a box of fruits and vegetables me for $25 a, a, per shipment. And um, it's gotten me thinking about like, what do I do with artichoke? What do I do with the beet? <laughs> um, like, like these are foods that I didn't grow up with. And, um, and it's, I've, I've really been able to expand um, what I can play with in the kitchen, but also like what I put into my body. Mm-hmm. And it's also like, gotten me more interested in, in gardening and like our community garden here where I live. And we're just like blessed to have a small plot where we can, like, I never knew what, how okra grows. And it's, it's sheer magic. <laughs> and like every morning you go and you're like, oh, that's how it works. Um, I, I, I really appreciated being able to have like, like to, to, to dedicate like an hour a day to this. That is so cool. So what did you do with the artichokes and the beets? Um, the artichokes, but in both cases, what I do is I go to Google. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I'm just learning the basics, right? Like, um, like lemon and artichoke in the oven. Mm-hmm. Um, with the beets, I found this, this amazing recipe in this book on African-American historical um, meals. And, um, and, um, they talk about like putting beets with with apples and onions mm. and like stir frying it and vinegar and yeah, just that like, sounds I, very good. I've never had these tastes in me before. <laughs> wow, what I, what book was that? I, I want to learn more. The book is called Jubilee: Recipes from Two Centuries of African American Cooking, and it really speaks to my own like history buffness in that like it's written by someone who is a historian, like a culinary mm. historian. So he's interested in how did African Americans um, innovates with the kinds of, like, first of all, like what they had around them, but also like, especially after the civil war, um, when they had the opportunity to set up their own businesses and restaurants, like what were they cooking? Um, and so what he did was he just looked at a bunch of old cookbooks. And so not just like the, the staples of like Southern cooking, mm-hmm. um, but also like how they fused their, um, their, the recipes with, like Asian styles and, and like Latino styles and um, because they're innovators mm-hmm. and not just like people who are trying to survive, which is often how we think about African-American cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's every, every, every uh, recipe is a story. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but I've, yeah. it's also been a real um, pandemic comfort for me. That is so fascinating. I love uh, like what you said about the blending of you know history and food. I went to a bookstore once in San Francisco and there was a section called food memoir and my life was like changed at that moment. So Ruth Reichel, the former editor of um, Gourmet Magazine and just an amazing writer, you know, tells the, the story of her life through foods and there are even recipes paired from this time when she was growing up her mom was cooking a lot of this or she was cooking a lot of this. And so you can make the recipe and it kind of like enhances the experience, you know, it's really cool. Okay. So final question for you, what is the best advice you've ever gotten or just something you try to live by? Um, I remember when I was in graduate school and thinking about what am I going to do next? And I mean, as we've been talking about, like I wear a lot of hats um, and I, I would say like this advice is related to that. And um, and maybe this is like a very like advice for ver- people at a very specific crossroads, but um, in thinking about like, like the profession I wanted to pursue, and it was really like like one of my mentors, um, in, in grad school said like, it's not really about how to position yourself. I mean, it's part of it, but you have to think of ultimately about the impact that is meaningful to you, like the impact you want to have. Is that like impacting the most people? Is it about having the deepest kind of impacts? 
And, and I continue to think about that, especially as I like take on so many different roles and you, there's only so much time in the day. And what's the impact that you want to leave with the, the, your loved ones, with the community around you? Um, so yeah, so it's, it's been useful in terms of like how to prioritize what I do, but also like to give value to what I do. Like when I'm like so tired at the end of the day, like what, what do I want, what do I want to reflect on? And that's it's like a simple thing. Um, and it's, it's been very meaningful for me. Awesome. I think that's a great place to end, but I, I guess I want to ask one follow-up, which yeah. is, uh, what did you decide? Yeah. So at that time I had uh, like two offers. It was to go into teaching or to go, move to San Diego to, to help run the San Diego Asian Film Festival. And so at that time, I mean, I was thinking about like, you know, what we were saying earlier, like, how do I get that job? How, what's the life hack so that I can just watch movies all day? And really like both, both, both satisfied that. Like I was going to teach, teach film um, or if I'm going to um, work at a film festival. And thinking about like in terms of social prestige and salary, it definitely would have been the professor side. Um, but I chose the nonprofit one um, because I know those audiences. I was one of them who go to film festivals and I know like what people are craving and, and I sort of speak that language too. And I feel like there aren't a lot of people who are, who are like, like particularly set up to be able to talk about Asian and Asian American cinema the way that I was at that time. So that's the route I took. And maybe this is just, I, I'm so blessed that I'm now, I now get to do both. Um, that, that in turn, I realized like, you know, actually if I can figure out how to go of certain things, uh, other things in my life. And then I'm able to maximize the kind of impact I can have. And that and that's, is very satisfying to me. Thanks again to Brian Hu for joining me. And thank you for listening to Name Drop San Diego. Just as a reminder, the festival starts October 28th and you can find more information online at SDAFF. That's SDAFF for San Diego Asian Film Festival. Org. If you like what you heard on Name Drop San Diego, please like and subscribe and tell a friend. If you have someone in mind that I should talk to, and tell a friend. And if you have someone in mind I should talk to, drop me a line at christy.totten at sduniontribune.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>